Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast which we will now be commemorating by carving a giant penis on the side of a hill. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. Do we have to? I mean, we have a logo. It's a skull. I don't know why we can't just... It's it's too late. I've already started digging. watching a documentary on Nat Geo called like Lost Treasures of Rome and there was an episode about Hadrian's Wall uh, which is very excited to see where this goes (laughs) you teased this before uh, yes before we started Um, and so they were doing like a little walking along the wall and this like portly English archaeologist is telling us about it and then he stops in front of a part of the wall and says now look here this is very interesting I'm not going to do the accent a craftsman has embossed a phallus on this brick and it zooms in and it is in fact one brick in hadrian's wall that has a dick on it i love that we as like a species have been drawing dicks on anything uh, we ever get our hands on um, until since the beginning of time but he like points out he's like and you'll see here now this was probably meant to bring a sense of like power <laughs> and success I was like, nah, man, he just thought it was funny to put the penis in Hadrian's wall. Fucking draw a penis. What's the reason anyone ever draws a penis? It's because it's funny. Always funny. Let me see if I can find a picture of the brick for you, because I'm going to take that hit of the thing I have to Google. You're going to Google Hadrian's wall penis? Penis brick. Told Hadrian's wrong, so. It's like Adrian, except there's an H in front of it. Uh, Oh, this is different than what I was doing. Um. Oh, there's more than one penis. 1,800-year-old Roman penis carvings discovered near Hadrian's Wall, and it literally looks like the penis from American Vandal. (laughs) I can't find the specific one from the documentary. Man, there are a lot of ancient Roman dicks. Yeah, they were called uh, Caesars. I don't know. That was a joke. We're going to have to do an episode on Nero sometime. Mm, Probably. I'm going to save that. do a mini on ancient Roman penises. The, the carved ones. Art ones? Not... Mm. Not the actual penises. So, we actually managed to stay, like, vaguely on topic, maybe? So, well, I mean, I, I will promise. I mean, I did tease in the cold open. There is at least one penis in this episode. There's always a penis in the episode. So, stay tuned. For a podcast hosted by two women. <laughs> Look... The patriarchy, I don't know. If you have a penis, that's fine. (laughs) I'm going to set my sources before I forget. Uh, So it is Wikipedia, History.com, National Geographic, Atlas Obscura, Thought Co., Smithsonian Magazine, BBC, and Live Science. Damn, that's a lot more reliable sources than I brought to the table in the last episode. (laughs) Well, it's also because I was doing one of those episodes, the the, the potpourri episodes, where you you cover a big topic and then you sprinkle in different examples of the topic. Does this one have any actual popes in it? Uh, sorry, does it have actual what? Popes in it. No popes. Mm. Um, I also call these my um, phone it in episodes because they're easier to write. Uh, so we are talking about geoglyphs today, actually. Um, not penises, but again. They will come up. Well, TBD. Mm, bad phrasing. They will occur <laughs> within your notes. I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, so... <laughs> God, I hate this show. <laughs> a geoglyph 
is a large design or motif created across large spans of Earth. They're typically, like, supposed to be 12 feet or longer. Like the NASA. But, yeah. I probably just spoiled. <laughs> I will get to that in exactly three bullet points. For some reason, the only thing coming to mind is, I think, the thing I just mentioned coming up in the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Oh, was that part of that? I haven't I seen the fourth Indiana Jones part movie. Of it. It's fine. It's not as bad as people say. There's aliens. That's fun. I, I used to be in, like, the stupid camp. It's fine. It's fine. So many movies are just forgettable, and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, when I watch the the Indiana Jones movies, I always make sure to end with that one, because it's part of the fucking series. Um, the, yeah, the, I think they came up in... It's been a while since I've done an Indiana Jones rewatch. Like, at least three or four months. At least. The frequency that I watch franchises at would amaze You just kind of rotate through them, essentially. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it'll come up, like sometimes we'll do all the Batman, and then sometimes we'll do all the Lord of the Rings. Hobbit not included. Uh, no, never watching The Hobbit. Those are actually legitimately bad movies. The Hobbit's fine. The other two are not. <laughs> yes. Anyway, geoglyphs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're getting wildly off topic. Uh, so geoglyphs, they're typically made using materials of the surrounding landscape. So like stones, gravel, the earth itself, you know. Stuff like Which that. They're is generally made basic. of stones and gravel. Yes. Well, so like there's, you can go two different ways. So you can do a positive geoglyph, which is, um, you know, carving like that cat hanging off the tree, and you do the hang in there. No, I'm kidding. That was a funny joke I just did. I was gonna make the same joke. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we host a podcast together. Uh, so a positive geoglyph is actually like aligning those materials on the ground, like making kind of piles of things. It's um, yeah. it's convex. Convex. It's embossed yes. as opposed to imp- like a negative is like carved out of the earth. Yes. Okay. So you're actually removing material instead of adding material. If you're making a stamp out of the earth. Yes, correct. Uh, so you can find geoglyphs on nearly every continent, though they are particularly popular among prehistoric populations of South America. And the most famous of these is, of course, Indiana Jones. I mean, the Nazca lines. Yes, uh, Harrison Ford is notably a natural wonder. He's 12 feet tall. <laughs> yeah, they kind of have to mic TV him before he's in the movie. Uh, so the Nazca Lines are a collection of giant geoglyphs in the Nazca Desert of southern Peru, about 20, 250 miles south of Lima. It's estimated they were created somewhere between 500 BCE and 500 CE by, appropriately enough, the Nazca people. Weird. Yeah. It's funny how that works out sometimes. How they made their own lines. <laughs> they are negative geoglyphs, so they have been ca- carved out of the earth. Basically, they are shallow trenches. Um, you took the off, like, the top... 12 to 15 inches of rock on the surface, and they reveal like a contrasting light colored clay underneath. So, oh. like the soil itself is kind of red, but you kind of dig down far enough and you get kind of the next layer of soil and it's a different color. So, they kind of oh. stand out. It's very cool. That is cool. Uh, the lines vary between in width of one to six feet, with each measuring as long as 1,200 feet to some over a mile. So, these are very big. Yeah, I don't know if I've gotten that across yet. I know so like, oh, like geoglyphs are like 12 feet or bigger. Some of these are very big. Well, yeah, it's I think it's a John Mulaney joke. Like, I I have no concept of size. So like when I'm making a birthday banner or something to that effect, like I can't plan it out properly. So just like being able to plan out something that big is amazing. 
Yes, it's, we'll get into a little bit later, but like, it's astounding because you can't see necessarily what you are doing. Like you, it's so big that you have no perspective on the full design at any one time. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, like you'd have to have someone up on something like, a, you know. Yeah, they're literally, so especially with the Nazca lines, and this is just geoglyphs in general, but for the Nazca lines, like some of them you can see from like surrounding hills. So, like, you can necessarily see them from the ground where, like, people could feasibly get in prehistoric, and not prehistoric times, but um, earlier times when these were, like, being made. Yeah. But, like, a lot of them you can only see from the air in an airplane, which is not something, you know, the Nazca people had access to. Unless, no. No. We'll, <laughs> we'll we get into it. We can't do th- No. Ancient <laughs> aliens aren't real. I mean, they might be, but, like, that they didn't build shit. Uh, so there are hundreds of Nazca lines. Most are simple geometric shapes or just long lines that are stretched across the landscape. Uh, some are pictorials depicting animals and plants, such as like a hummingbird, spider, llama, duck, monkey, lizard, dog, cat, trees, flowers, and even like just a guy. <laughs> <laughs> just a dude. Just a guy. Yeah, so the best the best view of these is like 600 feet in the air most of the time. Just Damn. that's the size we're talking about. Uh, the first written documentation of the lines was in a 1553 book by Spanish conquistador Pedro Cieza de Leon, who described them as trail markers. I'm so proud of you for pronouncing that, I believe, mostly accurately on the first try. Hopefully, we're about to pronounce another name that I have spelled out phonetically for myself because I was determined to pronounce it correctly. We're going to give it a shot. Proud of you. Uh, Peruvian archaeologist, and then I fucking wow. fuck up <laughs> archaeologist. I'm psyching myself out. Uh, his name was Toribio Meija Zespi. He was the first to properly study the lines in 1926. He had spotted them when he was hiking kind of the surrounding foothills. So he, again, was up slightly higher elevation when you can kind of just start to make out that, oh, hey, these weird lines in the ground, actually, they're huge shapes. When was he a thing? 26. 1926. Wow. So we, like, just didn't realize that those were... I mean, I, I yes. assume the native people. Well, now you said well, the people who made name? them knew they were there. Yeah, like the, the, the conquistadors tribes. had written about them, but I don't think they had like a real good perspective of what they were. Okay, like they thought of them as like just they would see like just the lines in the ground. They had no idea of like the overall shape. Okay, so it was just trenches. Yeah, damn, that must have been mind blowing. Uh, so in the 1930s, the lions began to be spotted by pilots flying commercial planes over the deserts of Peru. Then in 1940, an American historian named Paul Kosek in, uh, went to Peru to study ancient irrigation systems. And as he was doing that, he flew over the lines and realized, hey, this one's a bird. <laughs> like, it's not just a cool line. It's, it's a bird. Uh, so he began to study the lines in depth. And on June 22nd, 1941, just a day after the Southern Hemisphere's winter solstice, uh, he found himself at the foot of one of those lines. And as he looked up from his work, he realized that the line itself was in direct alignment with the setting sun. Hot damn. Isn't that cool? Like, I, w- I do wonder if that is like an actual thing that happened or just like a cinematic well, way of like retelling the story. But it's still like, I like it. That, that kind of architecture has existed in in that part of the world for a while i can't remember what i was watching i watch a lot of nat geo docs um but there is a temple like an ancient temple in i want to say also south america where on one specific day of the year like the sun lines up perfectly with it Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's it seems like actually people a long time ago were really good at like noticing where the sun was. Well, they didn't have anything else again, to do, Sarah. <laughs> oh, they didn't have anything else to do, and like that was how they determined the passage of time. Yeah, like, they didn't have clocks and shit and calendars. They had to, you know, go based off of like the actual world around them. Yeah. Uh, so following Kosick studies, a German mathematician and archaeologist named Maria Reiki began studying the lines, determined to understand their purpose. Uh, Reiki, like Kosick, believed that the lines were designed as astronomical markers showing where the sun and other celestial bodies rose on significant dates. Like, so Kosick even called them like the largest astronomy book in the world. I can see that being a thing. Yeah. Uh, it's also possible that other figures, like particularly the plants and animals, may have rep- represented constellations. Possibly. Uh, Reiki would study the lines for full full four decades, and she was so dedicated to her work that she she became known as the Lady of the Lines, and even located from Lima to a small house near the desert. I love this lady. uh, So she could personally protect the lines from careless visitors. Like, I've met NPCs like her in video games. (laughs) I do picture her like running out of this house and like yelling people like shaking a like a rolling pin or something. She sounds very cool. She's an archaeologist. She probably had like a pick or some shit. <laughs> in Breath of the Wild, there is there are like these shrines that are like little shrines that you have to find. Um, but sometimes there are puzzles around them. And one of them is on an island that is covered in flowers, and you have to pick your way through like a maze of these flowers, or else a lady standing on the outside yells at you for fucking with the flowers. And That's the appropriate reaction. It's my least favorite shrine because it's very difficult. <laughs> but it's those vibes. Yes, very much so. Uh, so other research, primarily that of archaeologist Johann Reinhard, uh, connects the lines to water. So not necessarily in finding water, like the lines aren't leading to water. Mm-hmm. Um, but like they were used in the worship of the deities who might bring the water. So again, like these people live in the desert. Rain is not a frequent thing probably captured uh, so rainfall. it's yeah so it's very important when it does rain uh so reinhardt theorized that lines could have been an aspect of their peop their religious practices either as like sacred paths to places of ritual hmm. or in the case of figures symbols meant to invoke the aid of certain deities uh, so some of the animal depictions are known to be symbols for rain or water or fertility and are often seen on pottery and other ancient peruvian sites uh, do they fill with water like in the now times um i don't know if the desert ever gets that much rain for it to like not immediately absorb like i just don't know if you would get an amount that it would like pool yeah well because like i've seen where people will dig out of clay like full swimming pools and then they'll do like a coating on the outside that like hardens and basically mm-hmm. makes them waterproof um and i was like maybe that's why they've lasted so long without eroding yeah i think that's actually i did read something about like like the reason they have been preserved so well is because the desert is so dry and so hot that it's like basically baked at like a kiln. I would imagine, like, okay, it's just so solid yeah, at this that point. Out. Yeah, of course, you do have the folks who believe it was aliens. Oh, yeah, I've met my father. <laughs> In 1968, Swiss writer Eric von Daniken published a book called Chariots of the Gods. 
question mark. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this guy. (laughs) In which he posited that the Nazca lines are actually landing sites for UFOs. His evidence for this seems to be they kind of look like airports. And some figures on Nazca pottery that, at least according to his interpretation, look like astronauts. Uh, There's also some of the usual ancient aliens bullshit built in. I think this book kind of like introduced the idea. So which like as we've discussed before and we don't need to get into right now but ancient aliens is racist nonsense yes um again as i probably say every time we mention it the long and short is that it's saying like these people weren't civilized enough to build this shit no one blames (laughs) like no one says ancient aliens helped the romans build rome so like think about that first (laughs) yes to think about that for like a little bit it's Um, always weirdly enough brown people (laughs) yeah strange um so that guy that wrote the book probably should never go to the Denver airport because I don't think he can handle it. No, he might die if he isn't dead already. Again, he was writing in like 1968. Who knows? It's a toss up. <laughs> the question of exactly how the Nazca people created the lines, like it isn't really even that much of a mystery. So like all that would have been required. Again, they're just like, not to say like it is an impressive achievement because obviously it is, but like there's nothing like super difficult about it. They are digging trenches in the ground, um, so all that's really required are simple tools and like really basic survey equipment. Um, yeah. And archaeological surveys of the lines have actually found like wooden stakes and other evidence that supports this. Uh, and then there was this one guy, Joe Nickel. He even no. said about. Re- Oh, I hate this motherfucker. But this guy's cool. He no, wanted he, is- he wanted to show how the Nazca people would have done this, so he literally like did it himself. Like he reproduced some of the Nazca lines using the same tools and technology that would have been available to the Nazca people. And between him and a couple other folks, they were able to recreate one of the largest figures in just a few days without any aerial aerial assistance okay so that's fine but this guy shows up in so many other like paranormal stories and his whole thing is basically just like fart noise no it's not and then he goes away he's the worst yes but sometimes those theories deserve it (laughs) this guy i'm pretty sure he showed up in our mothman episode too and i don't think you will uh be you can't be too mad at him for trying to disprove mothman just let people like that's his whole job though is like that's not real just shut the fuck up and let people believe in aliens unless it's ancient aliens then we need to correct that but like literally i think he showed up in the einfield uh, investigation which is where it pissed me off the most because it's like okay fine just come in here take a poop on all of the recordings and whatever Whatever, Joe. Well, Emily's personal grudge against Joe Nickel aside, aside, uh, new lines and figures continue to be discovered even into present day. Uh, So in 2011, a Japanese team discovered a small geoglyph that was like 9 by 12 feet that represents... um, Oh, tiny. (laughs) A decapitation. Yeah, just a little one. A little one, and it's a super violent one. (laughs) They also found another in 2016 that depicts a 98-foot-long mythological creature with like a bunch of legs. Which sounds very... It's a spider, Sarah. <laughs> cool. Yes. As recently as 2018, Peruvian archaeologists announced they had found a stunning 50 new geoglyphs in the Nazca Desert, which they had discovered through the use of drones. I, I do believe that these might have been like a... It might have rained more back then, too. Hmm? I don't know. I, it just... I, it feels like they might have been like man-made lakes, but they also made them significant. You know? 
No, because I think the whole reason they were preserved is like the time that they were built, the desert climate wasn't that different. So like it was still very arid and very dry. So it's just like they never got eroded because no water, like water would have eroded them, but it's in the desert. So there's no water. That's fair. Uh, So speaking of deserts, 500 miles south of Nazca in the Atacama Desert of Chile, uh, there is another series of geoglyphs that are actually even more numerous and varied than those at Nazca. But Nazca gets all the press, of course. There's always one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So built between 600 and 1500 CE, the Atacama glyphs, uh, which are numbered like 5,000 in all, um, cover a combined area of of over 90,000 square miles and feature geometric animal and human forms. Damn. So similar to the Nazca Alliance, most of those who study the Atacama glyphs believe that they likely had some kind of symbolic or ritual purposes. It's also theorized that they probably played some sort of role in like the transportation network of the region. So like a lot of them are found near these like old ancient llama caravan routes that's <laughs> connected many of the early South American civilizations, which I just love that mental image just like llamas everywhere a llama caravan yeah yeah uh so one function may have been to like mark safe pathways to the desert as well as direct travelers to nearby salt flats and water sources ah ah yeah okay uh so some of these are negative glyphs so they were carved out of the earth similar to the way the nazca lines were um others were built using stones or other natural materials and some kind of use a mixture of both so they're very varied They're trying different mediums. They're very expressive as artists. (laughs) So the most notable of these is the Atacama Giant, which is one of the largest geoglyphs ever constructed. Uh, So built on a Chilean hillside, the giant is the form of a man over 390 feet tall. Excuse Uh, me? Yes. Very big. Of course, he is on the ground. (laughs) So tall lengthwise. Long, long. Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I am using the the terminology that the article I read this in used. He's there. Uh, he's a horizontal tall. He's a he's a lengthways tall. <laughs> so there are like he's kind of just a pretty basic figure of a guy. You know, he's got a head, arms, legs, whatever. But he's also got kind of like straight lines that are coming out of his head and of his torso, just kind of like almost like a crown. It's possible these are supposed to imitate sort of like a ceremonial garb or possibly evoke the features of a god. Um, and it's also possible, here you go, this is going to be familiar very soon. It's possible these lines were used to track the alignment of the moon and kind of like what time of year it was. So like, I don't know, as the kind of sun and moon set over different lines, it probably tells a different season. Who knows? I mean, my first thought was stink lines. You know, like you would draw on a cartoon, but they could also be stink clients. That's a very compelling theory. <laughs> you know, I thought I'd present maybe it. the Atacama giant was just a very stinky man. <laughs> Look, I mean, it's the desert. It's hot. You know, I, I mean, no judgment. Some people just like produce more sweat and BO than other people. It's just that's how their bodies work, including this two dimensional man. <laughs> so <laughs> farther north. <laughs> In just about the last place you would expect to find ancient mysteries, there is the giant serpent mound. And I want you to guess what state this is in. State. What state? What's, what U.S. state do you believe holds the least amount of mysteries? North Dakota. Very good guess. It's actually Ohio. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Chile? <laughs> they put their chili over spaghetti, I think. Oh, those people are disgusting. <laughs> You might be correct. 
maybe there is a lot of mystery in Ohio. I mean, that that also is where the Drew Carey show is set, so. Yes, true. They got that for him. (laughs) (laughs) So as the name suggests, Serpent Mound is built in the form of a 13,048-foot-long stake. Or 1,300, sorry. 1,348-foot snake. I was going to make fun of you for saying steak. Um, steak? But yes, yes, you did say a 30-whatever-thousand-foot-long steak. And then you continue to correct yourself, not acknowledging the steak, but, you know. Just My nose sure is just knows. a little stuffy. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, so it is winding its head, or it winds from its head in the east to its tail in the west with seven coils in between, and those kind of coils vary in height between like four to five feet uh, in height and 20 to 25 feet in width. So this one is actually tall. It is coming out of the ground. <laughs> it's thick. <laughs> so the head of the snake is devouring a 120 foot long hollow oval feature, which may represent an egg or maybe the sun or maybe something Both. else. Like it could have been like a stage or like a platform or something. Who knows? But it's eating this big brown thing. It could be the sun and an egg. Could be the egg sun. <laughs> it is believed to have been built somewhere around 300 BCE. The yeah. going theory is that it was originally built by the Adena culture, then later rebuilt or repaired by the Fort Ancient culture somewhere around the 12th century. Uh, but it's really hard to know for sure because they can't actually, or they haven't actually found a lot of physical artifacts at the site. So they had to kind of rely on radiocarbon dating and, and then even the estimates they've given, gotten have been conflicting, probably because like construction stopped and then picked up at other times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Adida and Fort Eichen, it should be noted, are not the names of particular Native American tribes, but kind of just like a name used by archaeologists as a kind of catch-all for those who shared a similar culture in a certain region and around a certain time period. Yeah. We actually don't know the specific tribes that We did that this. in Europe as well. Like, when I was doing some Neanderthal reading, like, you would get into, like, the slant-edged cup culture. I'm not even kidding. There's one that's that weirdly named but it's it's literally just naming them after like what we we know because it's very far back yeah it's kind of just like categorizing different groups of people because we don't have enough information to know more specifics yeah uh so the purpose of the mound may have been spiritual like many native cultures from around this time revered snakes and graves and other burial mounds have been found nearby and um, that is um the adena people actually have been known to bury their dead in prominent mounds but there are no burials in the serpent mound for whatever reason Hmm. Uh, like the South American geoglyphs we've discussed, the serpent mound may also have had some sort of astronomical significance. So the head of the serpent aligns with the summer solstice sunset, and the tail points to the winter solstice sunrise. I mean, it could just be incidental, because like Catholic churches always face the West. Like, it's just maybe they had a belief where it's like we're doing something for this reason, like it has to be facing this direction because of the sun. But it wasn't like for the sun yeah that's fair i think it is interesting though that like it does like obviously anything you build that goes from one direction to the other is going to align with the sun at some point at opposite (laughs) sides of the year at some point yes it's just like the way it was like at a particular like it was actually the solstice and not like like, just like june 8th or something yes so like which it it, it at least suggests like some understanding of like the change of seasons and like yeah but again, like, we don't know exactly, like, what that meant, that it, like, faced the sunrise. Who knows? Uh, it is currently being considered as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is Ooh. just a cool, fun fact that I thought was neat. That is a fun fact. 
Uh, so from Ohio, we travel across the Atlantic to England, where all throughout history, folks have been going absolutely bonkers, putting white horses on the sides of hills. Really? There's like eight of them. I, I can't even get into it. <laughs> Not all of them are ancient, I will say. Uh, but the oldest is the Uffington White Horse which is the most English name for a geoglyph that I could ever think of, which was created sometime during the late bronze or early iron age. So about like 1380 to 550 BCE. Okay. So very old. This is actually like older than the Nazca lines. Uh, It's formed by deep trenches dug out using antler picks and wooden swades and filled with crushed white chalk. Hmm. It it is 360 feet long and 130 feet wide, so about the size of a football field. And its design is considered, at least by The Guardian, uh, the newspaper, to be a masterpiece of minimalist art. And I will say, it actually looks kind of cool. Like, it looks like a trendy design of a horse you would find in, like, a horse company logo. (laughs) Like Ralph Lauren? (laughs) Yeah, you know, like, horse companies. (laughs) Sure. If it was a company related to doing horse things and they had a logo, they would have like some sort of like flowy font and then this horse. It's it's actually really cool. Uh, the lines it's more like it's more suggestive of a horse than it is like a realistic depiction of a horse, which is kind of cool. Um, it's also very similar to Celtic art found on coins of local tribes. So it's you know, there's precedent there. The, it's a very common way for them to depict a horse, I will say. Uh, it is, of course, debated as to what the white horse's purpose actually was. Like most geoglyphs, it is aligned with some kind of celestial body, in this case, the sun. So in midwinter, the sun kind of appears to overtake the horse, kind of reflecting this mythological belief that the sun was carried across the sky on a horse or in a chariot. The significance of that, again, unclear. Um, I mean, we've heard actually, that story before in multiple yes. uh, lores. Many cultures have, like, a similar belief to that. Yeah. Uh, Scholars aren't actually even sure that it's supposed to be a horse. Again, like, it isn't, like, a realist. It isn't trying to depict something realistic. It's kind of just, like, a cool design of a horse. It could be a dog or maybe a saber-toothed cat. uh, But it has been referred to as a horse since at least the 11th century. So that's kind of how it's become known. Man, I love archaeologists and, like, historians (laughs) and and stuff where... They're like, we're going to call it that, and then in 20 years, we'll find out that we're wrong. And we'll just continue calling we'll just it a just keep horse. calling it that. It's fine. <laughs> it's not like that's how an entire group of indigenous peoples got their name back in, you know, the 1400s. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so for about the 17th century until about the mid-18th, or sorry, the mid-19th century, it was a local tradition to clear the horse of vegetation and renew the faded chalk. And this became so popular that it became a festival known as the Scouring of the White Horse. That's adorable. Yeah, it's great. You just all got together and cleaned up the horse. Like, very cute. It was like every seven years or something. Um, Upwards of 30,000 people were known to attend in later years, but the tradition did eventually die out. Uh, Routine maintenance is still required and still happens. Like, there's a whole article, if you look it up, uh, like, just Google it, that will come up about, like, the people who kind of, like, come out and clean the horse every couple years. It's just not quite, like, an event. They're not throwing a party at the same time. That's sad. I did picture kind of like the event in in Wicker Man where they, I don't know, set Nicolas Cage on the horse and light him on fire. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, during World War II, and this is actually true of like all the white horses in England, because there are many, uh, the white horse was covered with turf and hedge so that the Luftwaffe pilots would not be able to use it during navigation during bombing raids. Of course, this is very visible from the air. It's like very stark white against the grass. Uh, so you, <laughs> World War II is rough. You really don't want <laughs> enemy planes seeing that. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, there are a number of other white horses in England, all considerably more recent and also like less abstractly horse-like. These these are definitely horses. Uh, so just a couple of examples, because again, I can't get into all of them. It's all the same story. It's like these guys in either the 17th or 19th century decided to build a horse, and they call it this, and it's near this village, and it's a horse. <laughs> Is it kind of like the uh, crop circles where it was just dudes thinking they were yeah. funny? Yeah, well, not necessarily doing it as a joke or like a hoax or anything, but just people are like, that was like the thing for like, especially okay. in like the 20s and 30s, were just like, you know what would bring our village <laughs> some much-needed notoriety? A big white horse on the side of a hill. I'd go see it. Uh, so there's the Westbury White Horse, which is 180 feet tall and 170 feet wide, uh, likely created in the 17th or 18th century to commemorate an earlier battle of the site. And again, it is one of nine white horses in just like Wiltshire alone. <laughs> there's so many. They're just all it's, over. It's the early version of like when cities pick an animal and then do a bunch of art versions of that. Like in Eugene, it was ducks. And I think there were cows. Yes. Somewhere. Yes, in Minneapolis, we had, like, all the uh, Peanuts characters, Snoopy and all. Uh, so there's the Litlington White Horse, uh, which was carved in one night on the full moon of February 20th, 1924. It was likely inspired by the previously mentioned Westbury White Horse. Uh, the local folklore suggests that he was either cut as a memorial to a local girl who died when she was thrown from a horse, or carved by a young boy to mark the grave of his dog, and then it slowly eroded until it looked like a horse. I'm sorry, that would be like making, like, James Dean's uh, memorial a big fucking car. Like, little insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> That's an apt comparison, actually. Um, it, it should be noted that there is nothing to suggest that either of these stories are true, particularly because, like, we know the guy who did it. So. <laughs> Uh, there's also the Osmington, Osmington White Horse, which is 280 feet long. And uh, this one features a rider, which makes it unique among the dozen or so white horses in England. Man, some city council in the 30s is just still patting themselves <laughs> on the back. Uh, it's said to be King George III, who was a regular visitor to this nearby seaside town of Weymouth. Weymouth, or however you pronounce it. I'm Weymouth. sorry, England. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he come to visit, so they put him on a horse on the hill. Well, there you go. So, one other talk figure in England, which is not a horse, but does deserve special mention, is the Cerny Abbas Giant. Not a penis. Well, okay. so, <laughs> located just outside a village of the same name in the county of Dorset, the giant is 180 feet tall and is formed in the same manner as the Uffington White Horse. So, car trenches filled with chalk. Mm -hmm. uh, it depicts a man wielding a large club in his right hand. He is nude and sporting a prominent erection. I mean, at least he's holding a club and not <laughs> the penis. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. Well, see, because you said in one hand he's holding a giant club, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then the, the other hand, hand his penis. <laughs> no, I think the other hand's just kind of up in the air. Good. <laughs> 
so its exact age has been debated. It was only actually last year that researchers were able to date soil samples from the deepest layer of the carving. Uh, and those suggested that the giant was first made by the Saxons sometime between 700 to 1100 CE. Saxons were the... So they invaded Britain at some point. Where are they from? Do you say Saxony? I swear to God. They are, in fact, from Saxony. Uh, Let me clarify where Saxony is from. Modern-day Germany, right? Yes. Yes, Saxony is a state in East Germany. Okay. Because I had always thought that the Saxons were, like, from... um, They always kind of put me in mind of, like, Vikings. Yes. I don't know how entirely accurate that is or, like, how even similar those cultures were. They're different. They're different uh, because that's something that I've had to, like, wrap my head around watching Travis play Assassin's Creed Valhalla because those games are, like, I'm going to say 80% historically accurate. (laughs) Sure. Um, No, like, sometimes they use them as, like, teaching aids in uh, ancient history classes. Anyways. Yes, I've had to, like, <laughs> kind of figure out what an Anglo-Saxon is in comparison to a Nordic person. Uh, they're different. Yes. As a matter of fact, they didn't get along very well. <laughs> no one did. No. That's generally kind of a common trend throughout history. Yep. History is basically people didn't get along, and now we have 50 states. <laughs> yes. So the age is actually a surprising find. So as surviving documents from the nearby Abbey, which was founded in 987, don't actually mention the giant when presumably it would have been around at this time. Uh, There was also like a survey done in 1617 that made no mention of him. Land survey. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't like pull people off the street. (laughs) You got a scale of one to ten. Oh, yes. No, like surveying like the land. Correct. Not like... Checking in with folks. Have you seen the giant man on the hill with his penis? How would you rate the giant man on the hill with his penis? (laughs) So the current theory is while the giant maybe had been created during like the late Saxon period, at some point it just became neglected and grassed over and then was later rediscovered and restored. Um, Folk stories from the area associate the figure with fertility, of course. Penises. Uh, And there is a legend that doing the do on top of a figure, particularly his penis, can cure couples of infertility. I'm not nice. saying it works, but it may be worth trying. <laughs> um, And he just looks like a normal dude, right? Yeah, he's just kind of a normal dude. He's naked, has a penis. Thank you. <laughs> um, another story contends that the image is that the actual outline of the corpse of an actual giant, like crime scene style, The story goes that the giant came from Denmark leading an invasion and was decapitated by the people of the nearby village when he slept on the hillside. This feels unlikely, Sarah. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, the giant today is a popular site for publicity stunts. So in 2002, marketers for the Family Planning Association did a promotion where they donned balaclavas and spent a night rolling an enormous latex sheet down the length of the giant's penis. You know, that's good. I, this, this is very, it's a good use. (laughs) If you have a giant chalk giant, let's promote condoms. I agree. Uh, And then for the opening of the Simpsons movie in 2007, they actually painted a figure of Homer Simpson holding a donut um, in biodegradable paint, like just to the left of the giant which apparently anchored local neo-pagans who pledged to perform rain magic to wash the figure away. Yeah, I presume like, they were eventually successful. Not the most respectful stunt. <laughs> not necessarily. The, the condom, that's fine. This is to promote a... Mo- 
ah, <laughs> and it's not even one that was made in like their country. I, <laughs> I think it was part of a trend. Like I think they did like other things, probably similar things with like other famous landmarks. I can't exactly remember. Yeah, you know, there was they- a lot of promotion for the Simpsons movie. I don't know if you're around in 2007, but it was a little <laughs> off the wall. I was in high school in 2007. Uh, I still haven't seen the movie. Um, fuck, I lost what I was... Oh, yeah. You remember how they carved Homer's head into the fucking uh, um, Mount Rushmore? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's just promo stuff for the movie. It doesn't... Yeah, it's simple promo things. (laughs) They added Marge to the Trevi Fountain. It's Fox. They had, like, more money than God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So last but not least, we have the Boha geoglyphs of the Great Indian Desert, which is a series of geoglyphs carved into the soil of the Thar region of Rajasthan, India. So it's near the village of Boha, and that's kind of around the border with Pakistan. Okay. So the designs themselves consist of a giant spiral, a serpent-shaped line that's nearly seven miles long, uh, pretty impressive, and a meandering yep. pattern of 23 parallel lines that in total stretch over five miles. Damn. They're pretty big. Uh, the full collection spans over 51 acres, making them, again, some of the largest geoglyphs ever discovered. Uh, the ground of the Tar Desert is absolutely flat. There are no surrounding hills, meaning the only way to view these glyphs is from the air. So Maybe we just had more hills around. <laughs> I think people just had more time. Maybe they were taller. <laughs> yes, there we go. Actually, they were all giants. Um Mystery solved. Uh, So the lines were actually only discovered in 2014 by researchers doing a virtual survey of the region using Google Earth. So, like, not even planes. These are some guys trolling around on Google Earth. I've been there, yeah. Uh, The lines are dug into the desert soil about four inches deep and measure between eight and 20 inches wide. Really? Four inches? Huh? Four inches? That doesn't seem very Four deep. inches deep. No, not really. I guess they're pretty subtle. Like, you can all put pictures in the slideshow. They're, like, they're not quite as clear as some other geoglyphs. Well, especially to still be there. Yeah. Again, though, like, desert, very arid, dry, not a lot yeah. moving around. Yeah. Not a lot of, I'm sure, like, wind erosion, but, like, no water erosion to speak of. Um so based on weathering and vegetation growth, it's estimated that they are between 150 and 200 years old, which puts them in line with like the age of like a series of rock carns and memorial stones that are also kind of around the area. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like those kind of memorials are fairly common in that desert. So it like those could be completely unrelated to the glyphs themselves. We have no idea. <laughs> yes. You would think, I mean... So it gets me is like in none of the like press coverage I've seen around this have like anyone like gone to talk to the locals who yeah, you know, think would may have some memory of this. Who knows? Maybe they have and like nothing came of it. But like I didn't see anything about like there's a village nearby that they named them for. Like, have you gone to have you gone to talk to those people? Like these lines are not that old. Who knows? Uh, I will say that due to the recent nature of the find, there is still a hell of a lot of more research that has to be done. It's actually not entirely established that the lines themselves are man-made. Um. <laughs> I mean, I find it pretty convincing just, like, looking at them, but also, like, I don't work with dirt. Um, so... <laughs> Dr. Amal Khar, who's been studying the tar desert for nearly five decades. So, like, this guy, I kind of trust him. He works with dirt. (laughs) He seems pretty knowledgeable. He has posited that the lines are actually natural geological features. So, my understanding of this theory is admittedly limited. Because, again, don't work with dirt. 
Um, but essentially what it boils down to is that because the desert is so hot and so dry that like heavier minerals in the soil, like iron and manganese tend to separate away from the lighter bits of the soil. And that kind of just ends up naturally leaving like alternating bands in the soil. Okay. And there are in fact, like some natural structures like this, just a few miles south of the Boja site. So TBD, um, I'd say either way, they're still pretty cool. I mean, even if that is naturally occurring, that's fucking cool. I was going to say, if it's a man-made thing, that's fucking awesome. If that's a natural thing, that's fucking awesome. It, it's a win either way. They look cool. They're great. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned, I guess, for more news about uh, the Boha geoglyphs and whether back they are actually geoglyphs. Who knows? I assume you have the Google alert set up and everything. Oh, Yes. I set up Google Alerts for all my ep- all my episodes, which is why I'm getting so many emails about coconut crabs. And the queen. Yes. The queen. <laughs> I almost did a mini that was just trivia about the queen. <laughs> that would have been timely. It would have, uh, but I decided against it, clearly. Um, well, not clearly to you guys. I decided to, to pick someone else to, to do the mini about. That's all right. They're very deserving of it. It's a fun little promo for next week. Which I feel like I should be getting paid by a certain major film studio at this point, but whatever. Really, we ought to be. We're such shills. Uh, anyway, no, that's super interesting. I had only really found, like, known about the Nazca ones, and I did not know there were a bunch of horses in England. Neither did I. This was also news to me. This, like, again, like, you know this. This is starting out like, oh, I'll do a mini about the Nazca lines. And then I looked and I was like, actually, I could probably stretch this into a full episode if I added a couple others in here. And next thing you know, it's but. four o'clock in the morning. You've been Googling yeah, usual. for hours. Yeah. No, that's fun. Um, yeah, ancient aliens aren't a thing. Uh, people made these, and it's very cool. Correct. That's really what you need to take from the episode, everybody. If there, yeah, if there's one fact that you retain, it's that ancient aliens is bullshit. It's just a way to discredit the accomplishments of brown people. Um, Correct. If you have any geoglyphs in your <laughs> lawn, um, <laughs> that's a crop circle, and that's something that we can't help you with. <laughs> but you can tell us about it uh, on Twitter at Afternoonified and Instagram at Afternoonified. You can also email us at afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com. Um, we have getafternoonified.com where you can donate, you can find merch, uh, you can look at past episodes, even though, again, you have a podcatcher. Like, that's way easier. But, like, you can go to the website. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> if, like, your phone blows up, sure. Yeah. All the episodes live there. Um, yeah, and remember to rate, subscribe, review, and all of that fun stuff. And uh, Sadie pitched us a merch idea the other day, and I'm trying to remember what it was so I could pitch it to the good people of the podcast. I think it was the Mean Murder Man of Whitechapel shirt. Yes, correct. She wanted a Mean Murder Man of Whitechapel church. Oh, no, she wanted church. <laughs> she wanted it in the style of, like, those Beatles shirts. So, like, uh, the Mean Murder Man of Whitechapel and Ted Bundy Shithead of Queens. Manor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't think I'd put Dumpy Shithead of Queens on, on there. Um, I'd think of another name for Son of Sam. Um, more like Son of Lame, am I right? Um, That's actually pretty good. <laughs> tiny Gremlin Man. Big Clown Moron. Um, <laughs> Jeffy Can't Get a Boyfriend Dahmer. Um, all right, guys. That's... That one's somehow the worst. <laughs> Is it because I called him Jeffy? 
No, it's just like, it's just such a biting insult and like he deserves <laughs> insults, but also like, it's just so mean and like mean in a funny way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you want a shirt like that, um, let us know if you have it's a lot of text to put on a shirt, but we can try. <laughs> yeah. Mean Murder Man at Whitechapel. It does take up a lot of space. <laughs> in fact, most of the lines that you would need for that one single shirt. <laughs> We'll we'll workshop it. All right, guys. See you next time. (laughs) Bye, guys. We love you. Okay. I did send you the cold open. Yes. That's what reminded me of my fun fact. Oh, is it about penises? Yes. Excellent. I should really just start grabbing tags from the stuff that we talked about before the show actually starts to, like, put at the very end of the episode. <laughs> For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below. <laughs>